Aloha and welcome to Thumbing Through Yesterday, the podcast where we take our favorite books down off the shelf, blow the dust off of them, and remind ourselves why it is we love them. My name's Tom Galley, and with me today we've got Tony Pasculi. Happy to be here. What are we talking about today? All right, so today we're doing Michael Crichton's breakout novel, The Andromeda Strain. Mm-hmm. Uh, really early techno thriller. Sort of a sort of a scary novel when uh, when the idea of spaceflight was still new and the idea of bioterrorism was new and uh, well actually not even new it was sort of something that people were worried thinking about anticipating mm-hmm. um, and and uh, well before you know anyone's had uh, global pandemics on their radar <laughs> so and then this is a book about a, a disease that comes back to Earth from space from not even from space from um, Near space from a high uh, high atmosphere, they send uh, the military sending satellites up into the high, upper atmosphere to yeah. collect samples for expressly for this purpose. So you know that's going to work out badly. Uh, they're looking for interesting organized organisms that they can weaponize, and one comes back to Earth, and that's when our story starts. Yep. This uh, this was a fun read. Crichton is always kind of a fun read. He he is a nice, competent writer, and he he always delivers. He he's one of my favorite writers, and he's he's very particular, and we can talk about the ways in which he's particular, um, and that makes him great for some people and terrible for other people. Yeah. And one of the things I was really struck with reading this book again, uh, this is from 1969, by the way. Wow, I was two. <laughs> <laughs> so when was uh, when was the moon landing? Wasn't it about 1969? We're certainly in the neighborhood of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is a very topical book. Uh, space race was a big deal at the time. So Crichton, Crichton is kind of his his claim to fame is he's incredibly technical and very well researched, and he just he just shoves in all the technical detail that he can think of, and he just assumes you'll be interested in it, and if you're not, too bad. Yeah. And fortunately for me, I am. Uh, a lot of people are not. And one of the things that takes a back seat as a consequence is believable characters with human motivations and that sort of thing. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, that sometimes we talk about what transfers well across the years and what doesn't. <laughs> um, one of the things that didn't transfer is it was, it was almost funny to me how new computers had to have been at the time because he keeps breaking into these things about what the computer is and how you can, how it can do these things, you know, and we're treated to a page, a page and a half on the idea of task sharing. The fact that more than one person are using a single computer because the computer does things so fast. It's waiting on you. It's like, he spends two pages breaking down how binary arithmetic works so that he can explain a number in a file. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, come on. Well, one, everyone knows it. And two, everyone would just toss that off anyway. I just say, well, it was binary. So he quickly worked out it was 87 and decimal. But no, he explains how binary works for two pages. Yeah. But again, 1969, uh, in 1969, IBM still ruled the roost with, uh, with their big iron. Mm-hmm. Uh, mainframes, mini computers. I don't think mini computers were even a thing yet. Um, and certainly we're, we're decades away, or at least one decade and a half away from... Uh, Anything resembling a personal computer. A personal yeah. computer, yeah. IBM's IBM PC came out in 1981. The Apple II came out in 1979, I think. So we're a long, long yeah. way away from a computer on a desktop. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting to think, you know, this might have actually been new to people. This actually was new to people, you know, <laughs> going back and reading techno thrillers related to computers from, you know, decades past. It's, yeah. So, it's kind so of amusing. Crichton was actually a medical student. In fact, he wrote this novel while he was in medical school. 
and one of his reasons not to continue as a doctor is because his novel did so well. Mm. And I think he kind of always wanted to be a novelist or a writer, uh, which is why he was writing on the side to begin with. Um, and, uh, and he also had some experiences in medical school that kind of turned him off, which you can read about in another one of his books. He wrote a book called Travels, which is his experiences in medical school and then just traveling around the world. Um, and he did not have a good time in medical school. Hmm. So, but he certainly took away from it a lot of medical knowledge and a sort of a scientific uh, mind that's well suited to writing this type of book. It gets into wonderful detail about the mechanism of how the Andromeda strain, this, this I don't even know if you'd call it a virus, how this organism works, how it reproduces inside human beings, the effect it has on their, uh, um, on their biology. Uh, it's all explicitly laid out. Yeah. Yep. Yep. He does love his details. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I was really surprised. <laughs> I, I read this, the first time I read this book, I think I was in sixth grade, maybe fifth grade. Um, and just loved it. It was absolutely thrilling. Uh, and read everything else I could get my hands on by him. And then every time I come back to it, I enjoy it, I think, just as much. Wow. Uh, yeah. It's really, it's really, uh, yeah, I just, I just love his style. And I, the, the farther away I get from my initial read and, and the more I've read other sorts of literature, the more I start to see Crichton's limitations in terms of what he can do with, um, what he can do with, you know, humans, <laughs> <laughs> which are kind of, kind of the focal point for most other novelists. Uh, he really falls down a lot there, uh, especially in his later books, books like, uh, Books like Disclosure, uh, which is about a sort of an ongoing sexual harassment suit inside a tech company. All the tech stuff is wonderful, and all the human interaction is highly suspect. Yeah. Uh, well, it's he just needs people to be there to paint the the, <laughs> the foreground for the the background he wants, right? Yeah. It, it's not about the people. Oh, yeah. in this way, it's this book is kind of about the failings of the people. Why? Why it's the people that let the system down? Well. I would say, and this is kind of, this is the theme he comes back to in Jurassic Park, that he's really interested in system failure and the fact that it's not the fact that the people let the system down, it's the fact that people are part of the system and therefore the system failed. Mm -hmm. And that's a system design flaw. Yeah. Um, it's something he talks about again and again through Jurassic Park is if you have a complex system, it's going to fail in ways you literally cannot predict. Yeah. And so you have to plan for failure from the get-go. You can't just say, oh, we thought of that and we have a contingency for it. No. <laughs> Life finds a way in Jurassic Park and, uh, <laughs> you know, something, error, error will find a way in every other system he talks about. Yeah. So. Now, structurally with this book, there was, there was something that bothered me. Hmm, um, interesting. It... Uh, for the most part, is presented from an omniscient narrator perspective, right? We we are God because we're privy, we mm -hmm. see things, we hear things, we we know what the characters are thinking, right? Is is written in that that um, omniscient viewpoint. But every once in a while, this little meta thing slips in where somebody that's not in the book is passing judgment on the content of the book. Like you know, we'll have the content. This is where the doctor made his first mistake. Where did that come from? <laughs> Who is it that is speaking to me? I am God. I am I'm, I'm privy to this person's innermost thoughts. So this is not a report that's being written. And yet we have these, these in a film, you'd call it a fourth wall break, yeah. right? Where something outside of the complete narrative is speaking to the narrative. It's interesting. It's, it's, it's a device that gets used in different ways in different books. Uh, I think the, the book that uses it the best is The Princess Bride. Uh, and you see mm -hmm. that reflected in the movie. 
where you have a narrator who's actually actively impinging on the story. Um, right, but it's it's set up to be that. Yeah. Here I think of it more, uh, I don't have a better name for it than this, so it's it's clickbait. It's it's <laughs> it's uh, it's bullshit irony. It's it's we're gonna throw this in there so that you know that something's coming, uh, and I'm not gonna tell you what it is. I'm just setting the hook, but I'm doing it um, you know, out of band. Uh, and I think it's kind of cheating. Yeah. But it works. It's very effective. Uh, and it just it drags me in until you recognize the device and go, okay, enough know, I, of that device. I found it distracting. Yeah. Um, and in a way, it annoyed me because now I'm going, all right, I'm <laughs> waiting for you to explain this, this statement that you made three chapters ago. We haven't gotten to the part, oh, here we go. You're actually going to explain what the mistake was three chapters ago, yeah. which doesn't add anything to it for me, at least. Interesting. You know? Yeah, I would have much rather had the character, and in fact, in, in that particular thing, right, the, the mistake that the doctor made, the first mistake the doctor made was he did not autopsy the mice, the second yeah. generation of deaths. Um, but later on, the doctor realizes it. He's like, holy crap, I didn't autopsy the mice that died of the second generation. Of the, I should have probably done. We yeah. didn't need Michael Crichton stepping outside the bounds <laughs> of the narrative to go, this is going to come back later, and then to say, hey, look, this has come back. Yeah. You know? I think it, okay, generously, I'm going to say uh, that it's part and parcel with his his idea of systems failure and systems analysis. He spends a lot of time in this book talking about systems that fail. Mm -hmm. And that's one, it's like down to human error. And whenever, whenever you have humans involved in a system, you're going to have human error. And here's a human error. He just forgets to do a thing. There's no checklist. Uh, and so he just skips a step. Um, later, he goes into excruciating detail about a printer jam. <laughs> well, now that is a very significant printer jam, and that just sets up this whole beautiful, you know, chain of events. Yeah, but it's but it's wonder is like, oh my god, how much can you write about a printer jam? <laughs> Quite a bit. Quite a bit. It, it turns out. <laughs> Never ask that question, right? Because you'll get the answer. <laughs> you know, but that I love. You know, the the idea that. You know, these scientists are sequestered in their super secret underground bubble and they send a message. They're like, thou shalt nuke this town. <laughs> yeah. And then they simply turn their back on it. They're like, yeah. okay, problem solved. We yeah. now have as long as we feel like doing this to play with this little bug and see what we can get it to do and what yeah. we can find out about it. Never occurs to them to check and see if their instructions were followed out. Yeah. Never occurs to them to wonder why there has been no follow-up whatsoever. You know, and on the flip side, the people outside wonder you know it's like we didn't blow the town up scientists haven't said anything about it that's probably okay right we don't need to worry about the fact that they've stopped reporting to us do we ah we'll leave them alone with their space bug yeah uh, this is before the idea of silos came into business parlance uh where you have independent units or working in individual silos and they don't have cross communication effective cross communication whether it's bad for organization and here the scientists are working in a literal silo Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising that that happens. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, and of course, <laughs> this comes out, it, it ends up being the savior of humanity. Yes. Right. The, because the, it would have been very bad if they dropped a nuke on that town. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm not convinced that it would have been, right? Because the, the virus evolves so quickly from something that kills by interacting with the, the blood vessels, then it kills by eating plastic, then it kills by eating flesh off of bones, and then it stops killing altogether. Yeah. Um, in the course of a couple of weeks? Five days. Yeah, five days. Yeah. So, I mean, had you <laughs> dropped a nuke on it, it probably would have just accelerated the process. 
the concern was that it would, uh, it might have accelerated the process, but it would have spread it out over a much larger area. Yeah. Uh, so it's... Uh, well, it's humanity. covered the world now. <laughs> I mean, it's into the American and the Russian space programs. That's so. true, yeah. Um, so humanity kind of lucks out in the book in that this uh, capsule falls on uh, Piedmont, Arizona, which is a town with a population of 87. Uh, and then it gets unlucky in that the, the curious inhabitants of Piedmont decide <laughs> when they find... Find a spacecraft that they should open it up and see what's inside. Well, no, they're smart <laughs> enough to take it to the smartest man in town first, which is the country doctor, right? And he's the yeah. one who apparently decided, yeah. we need to get inside this thing. It's really important to get inside this. I think when you have a population of 87, you're the smartest person. You don't have enough room for deviation to get a genuinely smart person, maybe. Maybe. So, um, yeah, because he was not that bright. It turns out <laughs> this did not work out well for him. Yep. So this is interesting. This book made it back onto my radar because coincidentally, a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks ago, I don't know, fairly recently, uh, a sequel came out, and it has Michael Crichton's name on all over it, but it can't be by him. I don't know who actually wrote it. Called the Andromeda Evolution, and uh, you know, I read it, and I literally at this point I couldn't tell you anything about it. Oh, it was by Daniel Wilson. Daniel Wilson, who wrote Robopocalypse. Okay. Um, so this came out in... Ah, I don't know. I can't find out. Where's the date? 2008? No, that's when he died. Anyway, uh, yeah, completely forgettable. Completely forgettable book. I literally have forgotten it. Uh, <laughs> But it but it put it put the Andromeda evolution or put the Andromeda strain back into my mind. Read this book, read it, enjoyed it. Said, oh, that was fun. It wasn't. It's no Andromeda strain. I should read the Andromeda strain again because that's so great. I don't think Andromeda strain is Crichton's best book. I think if I hadn't read this, I would have picked something else to represent Crichton. I think Jurassic Park is a better example of his of him okay. at his best. Um, or maybe um, maybe the Great Train Robbery. It's a very I interesting read that one. Yeah. The Great Train. Imagine a techno thriller. Imagine Michael Crichton writing exactly the way he does in the Victorian age. Hmm. Yeah. So there are no computers. There, there is no medicine to speak of. Uh, there's no, there's no technology, and yet he writes a techno thriller. <laughs> I was about to say about the first robbery of a moving train. It's inspired by a true story. Uh, and, and so he does his usual Michael Crichton thing by getting into all the details of how trains work and how skeleton keys work and how you would make a copy of a key that you could use on another lock. And just like he just dives into this detail with the exact same passion that he does all those other techno thrillers, except the technology is much, much simplified uh, and antiquated. And it's, it's fascinating. It's a wonderful book. That sounds fun. Yeah. All right. So I don't know. I don't know what... Uh, I don't know what else to say about the Andromeda strain yeah. other than it's it's so Michael Crichton. Yeah, and it's I really appreciated and what I really found believable is the fact that, you know, they you've got a, a government who has set this system up, right? Mm -hmm. And and I mean, and they have spent no small amount of time, no small amount of money. They've consulted no small number of experts to come up with this facility and these protocols that in the end, are just utterly useless. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we end up with a picture of the organism and we end up with some theories about how it works, but it doesn't matter. It's already, you know, 
evolved itself to something that is benign, um, yeah. at least in the sense it's not killing living organisms, um, and it has crippled our space program. But yeah, what's one of the things that's striking about this book is that the story is kind of, I'm going to say thin. There's not a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen on an individual level, but in terms of the overarching plot, uh, this, this organism gets out, they try to stop it. It turns out they don't have to stop it or they can't stop it. Uh, and all of the drama comes from their attempts to stop it and, yeah. and try to evade the consequences of their own attempts. Uh, so it's really one of those, it's really one of those, what if they just hadn't done any of that stuff? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'd be in the same place, <laughs> yeah. you know? One of the things, uh, this was something I found a, a little bit annoying too, right? So the, oh my God, the, the seals are compromised. Oh my God, the bomb is going to go off. Mm -hmm. The only way to, to save ourselves is an action-packed climbing sequence. Yeah. All right, you have to climb through the core of the building, <clears> but the computer has defenses to stop things from escaping. So it's going to be shooting you with tranquilizer darts <laughs> as you do it. This all-powerful computer that could insert IVs, um, and, His terrible aim. Drive. Cannot aim, <laughs> right. Something that's supposed to stop, you know, a rhesus monkey from fleeing up the tube. It's supposed to be fast enough and accurate enough to track something that tiny moving that quickly. Can't hit a middle-aged scientist lumbering <laughs> up the inside of an access ladder. That's a good point. Uh, although you have to imagine this is probably the first time the system's been put into use as well. Oh, well, yeah. I mean... Uh, you could have, he could have handled it a different way. I mean, this is supposed to target, you know, a small primate. Yeah. And they, they even mentioned you can probably take several hits, yeah. uh, you know, before you're tranquilized, but eh, whatever. So one of the other things, I'm just realizing a recurring theme here. We've talked about this before with other of my, other of my picks <clears throat> is this, is this the idea of the competent man. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's the, the Gernsback ideal of, of someone who just is good at what they do. And these people, for the for all of their failings, they do make some errors, you know, forgetting the uh, autopsy and so on. But they're all supremely confident in their area. They assemble, scientists assemble this team of people who are just, uh, wait, where's a quote here that sort of signifies, I forget which person this actually refers to. Perhaps the most significant thing, Stone, perhaps the most significant thing about Stone, he's a scientist now, was he had done Nobel caliber work as a law student. So he was a law student. He mm -hmm. won a Nobel Prize for work he did while he was in law school. And then he transitioned into some scientific field, uh, and now he's doing this other thing. And it's just like, good God. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, that's ridiculous. No, they assembled a good team. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I found it a little bit unforgivable that you had an epileptic who was aware of their, their mm. condition, and yet... Hiding it? Hit it, yeah. right? And they, you know, he hit it. In, in the movie, it's actually a she, right? But the, the character hit it because they really, really, really <laughs> wanted to be part of this. You know, if, if there's an alien space bug, I want on that team. Yeah. So I am going to hide the fact I have this condition <clears throat> that could, you know, and in fact does jeopardize the and success jeopardize mission, of the yeah. mission. Uh, the other thing that works, I think, in, in Crichton's favor here, we're talking about how uh, coincident this is with the space program in the United States. And there was... Um, you know, this sort of a, there was a mode of expression for, for NASA and the astronauts, which was, let's call it unflappable. You know, I mean, <laughs> the famous line, Houston, we have a problem. And not just like, oh my God, we're all going to die. But just like, okay, we've, we've noticed something here and, and we're certainly going to perish if we don't fix this in the next five minutes. Uh, and that sums up these guys. There's no, 
They're not particularly animated. Uh, they're not particularly vibrant people. They're just so matter of fact, but it very much in this context and in the keeping of that, the context of the, of the space race in the United States, it just works for me in this context. Uh, and their Crichton's failure to sort of develop these people in a, in a more human way is okay because they're just scientists who are so focused on being scientists at a time yeah. when scientists were, were very scientific and unflappable. Yeah. So that works. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, they're not terribly well developed, but I think, you know, a lot of it is believable. Yeah. Um, and particularly, you know, <clears throat> okay, now Crichton's the one that's, that's <laughs> taking us on the ride. So he gets to, to sculpt these things the way he wants to, you know, but you've got the scientist who is staring the answer in the face and yet not seeing the answer because it's not the answer that he thought there should be, you know. Which, which one is that? Um, so when the, the, the ongoing, I don't remember the character names, unfortunately, but you, you've got the ongoing thing about, <laughs> <laughs> unimportant really at the end yeah. of the day, right? You've got the, the baby and the, the elderly man. Yeah. How could they have both survived, right? And he's confident that it's the acidosis. It's got to be the acidosis. can be nothing but the acidosis um, without even realizing he's saying the answer out loud. Just, it's not acidosis it's the acid level right you've yes. got they're, they're at opposite ends of not correct um so when did that when did the penny drop for you on that on the, the it was just out of band in two directions with the baby and the old man i don't know if i can give that a fair answer because i've read this before okay. and i've seen the movie before and i knew what the answer was um you know, certainly if you had asked me, you know, quick, before you read the book, give me a detail from it. That's not <laughs> what I would have come up with, you know, but I'm thinking that as I'm reading this, I'm recognizing it. And in the back of my head early on, I was like, how can you not see this? Um, but I, I don't know that that's a fair response. Right. It's interesting you say that because I made a lot of notes about that specifically. And it really, it really, I was noticing every time, uh, I think the first time I read this book, and again, I was in sixth grade, so I was, you know, open to anything. Anything mm -hmm. would blow my mind. But that blew my mind. Uh, the idea that's like, of course, a thing could be too high or too low. Yeah, it just needs to be away from center. And that's bad, which is exactly the hap what happens. The, the old man's acid levels are too high and the baby's acid levels are too low. Yep. And that's why they're the two survivors of the, uh, of the incident. Uh, and it takes a scientist a long time to figure this out because they're saying these, these two have nothing in common. Yep. Ah, uh, it's like but, but he's deviate from the mean. <laughs> something in that put him on the track of the acidosis, the idea yeah. that the high acid level, because he, he does experiments that are designed to to prove that. Because because the old man is out of the norm, whereas the baby is completely normal for a baby. Oh, right. That's the okay. trick. It's like there's nothing unusual about this baby, except that because it's a baby, it's unusual for a human being. It has a low acid level. Yeah. So that's that's where the deception comes in is thinking about what what is normal and not thinking about the context of normality. Um, so because that was such a standout thing for me the first time I read this book, as I'm reading it again, I was looking at every single time. It's like, well, how big a surprise is this? Because there's a huge mystery I remember in the book. Mm -hmm. How big a surprise is this? And Crichton is basically hammering you over the head with this stuff. Uh, he, he brings it up so many times. Yeah, it's a recurring thing, which is why it sticks in my head, too, that, you know. The body is too hot or too cold, too acid or too alkaline. There is too much oxygen or not enough. I mean, that's he's setting it up right there. He's setting up those extremes, and yet the scientists don't click on this. Uh, 
How about the acid-base balance of the child? Normal, perfectly normal for a baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So there's a couple of times when the uh, when we have the one character that gets exposed and they're they're arguing about you know should we put more oxygen in the room so that the uh, the the thing can't spread because it doesn't like oxygen? Or should we not have as much oxygen and have them breathe rapidly <laughs> to get the acid level off? And then someone eventually notices there's a lab rat in there. It's just fine. <laughs> yeah. Lab rat's just chilling. Yep. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm being a lab rat, but I'm alive. You know. Yeah. Here's, here's one more quote along the lines of the extreme. This is on page 300 and they still haven't figured it out. We'll know that, Hall said, when we know why a 69-year-old sterno drinker with an ulcer is like a two-month baby. Response, they seem pretty much opposites. That he says it out loud. <laughs> yeah, but that's I, to me that's brilliant, uh, and and because we know because we know, uh, but that's one of those things. It just makes you go, oh my god, it was right in front of my face the whole time, which yeah. is obviously an experience we've all had. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think that's actually handled pretty well. I like it. So fun fact about Crichton: uh, this is not his first novel. He wrote. I don't even know how many novels he wrote before this. This was his breakout novel, and I think the first novel he wrote under his own name. But all through medical school, he was writing and selling novels. Uh, and just in the last few years after his death, they started to be released um, under his name. Um, and one of them is actually very good. It's called A Case of Need. And it's about a doctor who is a known friendly to abortion uh, doctor at a time when abortion is still illegal and gets involved in a case when someone comes to him uh, for an abortion then dies. Uh, and it becomes, it's, it's sort of a legal thriller, legal slash medical thriller. And it's, it's actually surprisingly good um, and uh, possibly topical. Um, but then he also wrote a whole bunch of just absolute dreck <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> that are just, just cheap thrillers set in Egypt or whatnot or, or bioterrorists. And it's just like not very good at all. But A Case of Need, if you want to read some Crichton that you haven't read before, uh, it's and very, very different and very much uh, focusing on the human angle in a way that Crichton usually doesn't. Um, yeah, it's a good book. So, All right, I'll look into that. I do enjoy his techno thrillers. I was trying to remember, is um, 13th Warrior, is that Crichton? That is also Crichton. And that yes. is actually a wonderful human story. It is, yeah. Although it's, it's such a remove, uh, you know? So, I mean, you're, you're talking about the story. You're reading the manuscript of a person who is embedded with this tribe, who is not of that tribe. Mm -hmm. So you're already removed because you're reading the manuscript. And this guy's at a remove because he's not of that culture. So you're at a double remove. Yeah. And then there was actually, initially, there was a language removal as well, yeah. right? Everything was, was, you know, going through one language to another to... Yeah. That's, that an, that's an amazing book. book. Yeah. That's an amazing book. Yeah. He's so good. He kind of went weird towards the end. I didn't enjoy his later stuff as much. Uh, Prey and yeah, Disclosure. Disclosure was a lot of fun the first time. I read it again. It's like, ah, man, the technology <laughs> stuff is great. And all the all the sexual harassment stuff is really not. Um, yeah. Yeah. Final thoughts? On Final thoughts? Stream? I don't know. Read A Case of Need and read Jurassic Park. <laughs> read Andromeda Strain. It's a, fun, it's a fun read. It's a fun read if you like this sort of thing. Yeah. Cool. So for the next one, I was thinking of going a little more classic here. How would you feel about 1984? 
1984. Love it. All right. Haven't read it in a long, long time. Uh, That's something you got to look forward to in two weeks. All right. Looking forward to it. All right. Yeah.